continuing with the chapter number five, to be or not to be, is that the question? And we've uh, been exploring the nature of conceit. The conceits of identity can be extremely subtle, as described, for example, by the Buddha in the Panchataya Sutta. So this is the one that was uh, quoted before, um, the five and the three, Sutta number 102 in the uh, Majjhima Nikaya, the middle-length discourses. Here bhikkhus, some samana or brahmin, with the relinquishing of views about the past and the future, through complete lack of resolve upon the fetters of sensual pleasure, and with the surmounting of the rapture of seclusion, unworldly pleasure and neutral feeling, they regard themselves thus, I am at peace, I have attained Nibbāna, I am without clinging. The Tathāgata Bhikkhus understands this thus. This good Samana or Brahmin, with the relinquishing of views about the past and the future and so on, they regard themselves thus, I am at peace, I have attained Nibbāna, I am without clinging. Certainly this Venerable One asserts the way directed to Nibbāna. Yet, this good Samana or Brahmin still clings, clinging either to a view about the past or a view about the future, or to a fetter of sensual pleasure, or to the rapture of seclusion, or to unworldly pleasure, or to neutral feeling. And when this Venerable One regards themselves thus, I am at peace, I have attained Nibbāna, I am without clinging, that too is declared to be clinging on the part of this good Samana or Brahmin. All that is conditioned and thus gross, but there is the, the cessation of formations. Having understood there is this, quote-unquote, seeing the escape from that, the Tathagata has gone beyond that. Well, as I mentioned before when we were quoting this passage a few days ago, that uh, this is a, a, a very helpful um, sort of reflection on, on meditation, particularly very wholesome, bright states of meditation when uh, the mind is completely peace, uh, peaceful and uh, completely quiet and uh, the, a very profound quality of stillness. And uh, as uh, the Buddha describes it in this, um, the, uh, the mind isn't focused on sense pleasure. It's, uh, the, um, uh, the mind has gone beyond getting caught in the rapture of uh, seclusion, the feelings of rapture or piti, unworldly pleasure, the, uh, um, the kind of uh, pleasure of the concentrated mind, the pleasures that come from the states of concentration. And uh, the mind is in a very, very wholesome, bright state. And so then there can be that, that recognition or that assumption. Yeah, I'm at peace. I've attained Nibbāna. I'm without clinging. And seeming to be a, 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 an accurate assessment of what's being experienced, that this is the mind is free of sense desire. It's the you, know, the you can look around and see, oh, there's no there's no sense desire. There's no ill will, no restlessness, no doubt, um, no dullness. You can say, well, all the the five hindrances are, are absent, and you know, the mind is is uh, totally peaceful. This is uh, and then to make the assumption, uh, I am at peace. I have attained nibbana. I am without clinging. But as the Buddha says, that very way that the mind phrases it, and, and believing in that 
you know, I am. I'm the experiencer of this. This is my mind that has got these these qualities. That that very uh, way that the mind phrases it, if if it's believing in that or hold, uh, holding it as a uh, as a truth, then that declares the clinging that is is there. Just the very fact that I'm at peace. I'm without clinging. I have attained nibbana. That uh, it sort of reveals. Well, <clears throat> you might think so, but. <laughs> That uh, the very way the mind frames it indicates the the clinging that it is there. So in this respect, it's not just a figure of speech um, that the person is uh, uh, is using, um, but rather it's a uh, uh, an assumption. It's demonstrating uh, the conceiving of that the the I feeling that is there. So the next passage. This comes from. The Book of the Threes in the Anguttara Nikaya. Now the Venerable Sariputta went to visit the Blessed One. As he sat at one side, the Blessed One said this to him, Sariputta, you must train yourself thus. In this body, together with its consciousness, there shall be no notion of I and mine, no tendency to conceit. Likewise in all external objects, there should be no such notion or tendency. We will abide in the attainment of the heart's release, the release through insight, so that we have no notion of I and mine, no tendency to conceit. That is how you must train yourself. Insofar as a bhikkhu has no such notions, no such tendency, and abides in such attainment, he is called, quote, a bhikkhu who has cut off craving, broken the bond. One who, by perfect comprehension of conceit, has made an end of dukkha. Moreover, in this connection, Sariputta, I spoke thus in the chapter on the goal, in the sutta called The Questions of Udaya. And that's a, this next little passage is a, a direct quote by the Buddha from the Sutta Nipata. So there's a few times in the, the suttas where the Buddha quotes himself, and this is uh, one, of the, one of those occasions. So this is, um, if you're interested, from... Uh, verses uh, 1106 and 1107 from the Sutta Nipata. And don't be impressed because I looked it up about half an hour ago. <laughs> so that, uh, I mean, it's, and it's an accurate, um, uh, it's a sort of direct uh, statement of uh, what, what is said there in the Sutta Nipata. The abandoning of lust and grief, both of these, and sloth's destruction too. Restraint of mental restlessness and pure tranquility of mind, the equipoise of wholesome thought, these I call release by knowledge and the breaking up of ignorance. So uh, that's uh, letting go of greed, hatred and delusion. And then also speaking about the uh, transcending the, the hindrances, the nivaranas, restlessness and establishing um, tranquility. So that uh, this is a, a helpful expression that the the, uh, the Buddha uses here uh, to uh, speaking to Sariputta, who was notably already an arahant. <laughs> In this body, together with its consciousness, there shall be no notion of I and mine. So internally, so the the aspects of this body, like say this body, this mind, this personality, these memories, this, these ideas, these emotions, there shall be no notion of I and mine uh, of a Ahang, I, and mine, um, 
uh, as, uh, the uh, the uh, word mine being mama uh, mamang and my uh, making and mind making is ahankara and mamankara so i making made of, of uh, made of i ahankara and mamankara made of mine and no ten- tendency to conceit which is uh, mana likewise in all external objects there should be no such notion or tendency so also saying yeah this is my book or my chair or that this is my monastery um, that uh, external objects also um, they're not ascribing the I and mine to those and then as he says uh, um, uh, one who has no such notions no such tendency is called one who has cut off craving broken the bond who by perfect comprehension of conceit has made an end of dukkha so it, once again he's making a parallel between when that conceit of I am or the asmimana when that's when that's broken when that comes to an end then that's synonymous that's the same thing as as a liberation as a, a, the ending of dukkha so those are some of the more refined ways of speaking about conceit then he talks about um, conceit of identity in other ways so the, or, <clears throat> so the conceits of identity can be extremely subtle as I just said in those quotes or the conceits of identity can be quite clumsy and coarse and this little passage is from the Udana people get stuck on quote this was made by me unquote equally they attach to made by someone else quote unquote those who haven't seen this don't know it as a barb. It's like a, a thorn or a, a hook, a, uh, something that gets a, a sharp thing that gets stuck in you and won't, uh, is easy, it's difficult to get out. One who truly sees it has taken out the hook. I do this, quote unquote, doesn't rise in them, nor another does. Humanity is possessed by conceit, fettered, bound by it, and spiteful speech spews from their views. They don't escape samsara. So that's uh, the, the Buddha speaking in a very sort of direct and um, tangible way. And so that uh, these ordinary everyday judgments, like this was made by me, this uh, you know, I made this this thing, I, I wrote this book, or, or that was uh, made by someone else. Um, this uh, sala was decorated by Lumpo Sumedho and uh, Ajahn Manindo and uh, Sister Jodhika back in 1991 say this was made by someone else or this was uh, made by me that we we judge the way things are done the way things are put together in these ordinary everyday uh, ways um, <clears throat> but as he says those who haven't seen this don't know it as a barb so they don't know that when you say I made this or that this other person made this or did this that uh, again we we claim ownership of things that are created or made or formed or we ascribe it to other people and uh, then if we if we take that as an absolute truth uh, then uh, it's a barb like a, a hook that sort of goes in but then when you maybe you don't it's not so painful when it goes in but when you try and pull it out then it, it really hurts <laughs> the one who truly sees it as it is has taken out the hook i do this doesn't rise in them nor another does and uh, i was a uh, Giving the example of um, uh, yesterday when I was doing a reading with the Anagarikas and novices, Anagarikas, how, yeah, I can say that Ajahn Pastor and I wrote this book. 
Yeah, well, fair enough. Our names are on the cover, Ajahn Pasano and Ajahn Amarad. But we didn't actually write this book. This was um, <coughs> put together from uh, with the, the help of many, many people. This is printed. We didn't write it. <laughs> so the... Uh, um, the contribution of many, many people who uh, gave us quotations, who were our teachers, who, who um, uh, say, gave Dhamma talks that we listened to or who that we met who impressed us with their understanding. So um, all of these different influences, uh, the copies of the Pali Canon that were lying around uh, Avayagiri Monastery or contact conversations with Ajahn Sajito or Ajahn Tanisaro and Bhikkhu Bodhi and other members of the Sangha who were living at, uh, you know, in and around Abhayagiri through the, those ten years, they're, they're all here. <laughs> and the, the ink and the paper, the, you know, this, was, this uh, particular edition was printed in Singapore, I think, or uh, Malaysia, I think. <laughs> Let's have a look. Yep, this is uh, printed in, uh, in Malaysia. So this, uh, this particular edition, there's also the, this little group living in KL and uh, Singapore gathered together to help sponsor our publication. So they're here as well. <laughs> and then the, uh, the people who, who uh, made the paper, the, I think the, apparently, if I remember correctly, the, the paper came from Finland. So there's a, there's a bunch of Finnish loggers in here as well. With their chainsaws, and then where did the fuel come that, that powered the chainsaws that <laughs> they cut the trees down, or the paper mills, and then the ships carrying the paper to KL, and then the ships carrying the, the books over here? So when you say, I wrote a book, it's just one little aspect of a whole collection of, uh, of contingent and related um, uh, actions and intentions and, and uh, aspects of the material world, so that. Um, when uh, when we say about something, you know, I made this, or this is mine, then that can only be a uh, an approximation, or uh, just a, and if we see it as a conventional way of speaking, like you know, I I wrote this book, or I cooked this food, or I'm giving this talk, you know, so that you say I th- I'm I'm doing these readings. But when you, and you see a person, well, that's just that person. But I'm also my parents and my grandparents and my great grandparents. So they're all here as well. <laughs> we we take things, we make things very personal, as if you know, we created our our um, our bodies from nothing. <laughs> we created our our minds, our language, our conditioning. Uh, but they're, they're all here. I have uh, Tom Horner and Pat Goldsmith and uh, Charles. Julian Horner and uh, Mary Hayter and uh, Carl Goldschmidt and Madeleine Barat. They're all, and back and back and back and back. They're, they're all here. It is with all of us. So that we, when we see that what we call ours or things that we do or the things that we, we create, uh, then uh, uh, it's important to see as a bigger picture. I remember when I was living in the States, um, uh, reading an account from someone from the um, uh, a Native American from the uh, Iroquois tribe, and he was uh, talking about their their concept of competition and um, how you know, living in American society was was was. I mean, it's very weird in many ways, but <laughs> particularly weird about how he said that what's really striking is how people think when they when they achieve something or they win something, they've done it on their own. 
He said, uh, "Where I grew up on the re on the reservation, sure, you know, we had we had competitions. You know, who can shoot best, or you know, who can who uh, who can run fastest." And he said, "Sure, you know, you yeah, all the guys get out there and we run, and we want to come first so that we'll get, you know attract the girls." But but so when I if I win a race, I don't think it's me. Uh, you know, I know that it's all my ancestors, it's my relations who are who are there. I don't think it's just I, I've created this win, just just from from uh, my own personal and and individual essence. That uh, and I was really struck by that. That they this and it was almost the and also the way he spoke. It was this kind of well, of course, how I wouldn't even be here if it wasn't for my mom and dad, <laughs> and they wouldn't be here for if it wasn't for their parents and so on and so on. So, uh, and it was this very uh, matter-of-fact way that he spoke about it. It was like, yeah, that's kind of weird how we do that. <laughs> we, we make things so individual and so personal, but yet, um, how could life um, be that way? And so when we talk about conceit, a lot of it is that creation of me as a separate, independent individual that is somehow disconnected or is some is in a way unique from um, everything else, and it is so. Therefore, when the mind creates that, it's it's ignoring the relatedness that, that we have as a uh, as a what we experience and the, and the things that we do or the things that we own as being part of a a continuum, as you can say. So, any questions or thoughts on that before I continue? Yes. Well, in in uh, Buddhist psychology, uh, self-view is sakaya ditti, and so that is um, in the uh, the, uh, the it's amongst the first three fetters, the the three uh, the, of the ten things that uh, that obstruct the mind from complete liberation. So the first three uh, that need to be Transcended or, or, or broken through, a fetter is like a, you know, handcuffs or chains or things that tie you down. So, self, the sakaya ditti or self view is one of those first three. And so, the other two are doubt about what's the path and what is not the path, vichikicha. And then the other one is silapataparamasa, which means attachment to uh, rules, conventions, um, as uh, the um, Say uh, rites, rituals, and, and such like for the the wrong grasping of conventions. So uh, stream entry depends on those three being fully let go of. So uh, sakaya ditti literally means, or it, it means, the view of the real person or the real body. Kaya is body. Sat means true or real. Ditti is view. So the view of the real body. So that's. An uh, in, in, uh, in easy way of thinking of it is like, I am this body, this is mine, this is whom what I am, I am this person. And uh, so Lumpur Sumedha would use a phrase like, it's uh, identification with the body and with the personality, that's self-view. So uh, conceit, asmi mana, is, is far more subtle. And so that's in the, that's the, the eighth of the ten fetters, it's sort of three from the end. So that's not that's not actually uh, let go of until arahatship. So that uh, 
<clears throat> there can be, uh, say, a, a, a clear insight that the body is not self, feelings are not self, perception is not self, that the, the, the personality is not self. Uh, <clears throat> and that that can be very uh, clear and obvious and have been seen through, but there can still be a, a strong and persistent attachment to I, even though that I feeling isn't associated with any particular object. But it's just the, the like, I'm the experiencer, I'm the actor, I'm the, the one who's feeling, um, even though it's not uh, aligned with any particular aspect of the five khandhas. So it's much more, much more subtle and uh, insidious, hard to, hard to see. And, uh, and so that, that is only uh, broken through. That, uh, that's the eighth of the ten fetters. Yes. Um, well, almost almost always the word Tathagata is used by the Buddha to refer to himself, but not a hundred percent of the time. Sometimes the word Tathagata is used to refer to to any enlightened being. The Buddha sometimes um, will will use an expression like "such a Tathagata uh, is untraceable here and now." I think it was in that uh, one of the quotes I I. Uh, referred to, if I can quickly find it, um, such a one is untraceable here and now, I think is... Yeah, uh, exactly. Here we are. Uh, so this is from the uh, Sutta number 22 in the Majima, which is the simile of the snake, where the Buddha says, Bhikkhu's when the gods with Indra, with Brahma, and with Pajapati seek a bhikkhu who is thus liberated in mind, they do not find anything of which they could say, the consciousness of one thus gone is supported by this. Why is that? One thus gone, I say, is untraceable here and now. So he's using that, and that one thus gone is a translation of Tathagata. And so the Buddha is using that word there to refer to any enlightened being. But that's pretty rare. It's it's just once in a once in a while. So mostly, it mean it's the the word the Buddha uses to refer to himself, and it can mean well. Again, this is a there's been debate for <coughs> centuries about what is the precise meaning of Tathagata. But my my pet theory is that because it it the the word for uh, to go the verb to go is gachati. Like I go Buddhang Saranangachami. I go to the Buddha for refuge. So gachati is the, the, the verb to go. The verb to come is agachati. And so, <clears throat> so the word for such or thus is tat. Is tat. Tat. T-A-T-H. Or, <clears throat> or tata. And so then the word tathagata can be tat agata or tata gata. <laughs> it depends where you put the hyphen. Of course, there's no there's no hyphens in Pali, and it was a spoken language. So, in but when you put it in Roman letters, tat agata, meaning <coughs> come to suchness, or come to thusness, or tata gata, gone to suchness, gone, uh, gone to thusness, or thus gone. So, has the Buddha thus come or thus gone? Is he totally here or totally gone? 
absolutely imminent, totally present, or totally transcendent. And uh, the Buddha was very fond of, of word plays and puns, and so my pet theory is that he deliberately made an ambiguous word that means both, completely here and completely gone. That could just be my own personal creation. <laughs> but uh, it does, uh, it, it, it's reflected in many of those, those teachings, like that one I was quoting of the, the Buddha's dialogue with Anuradha about the Tathagata being unapprehendable, even when he's sitting, sitting in front of the, this monk, Anuradha, and the Buddha is saying, well, is the Tathagata in the five khandhas or apart from the five khandhas? Does he have the five khandhas? Does he not have the five khandhas? And Anuradha said, oh, no, 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 you can't say this, you can't say that, you can't say this, you can't say that. So <clears throat> that kind of um, both present and, and transcendent, imminent, uh, I, I feel that was part of what the Buddha was alluding to. And it seems, as far as I know, he invented the word. It doesn't appear in the Vedic scriptures prior to his time, as far as I know. So it seems like he, he coined the word to refer to himself. And, uh, <clears throat> and so it, um, it carries that. It's, all, it's one of those also interesting things where uh, in one of D.T. Suzuki's books he says, the word Tathagata is completely untranslatable. There's no way of rendering it into, into common speech. And then spends 14 pages <laughs> doing exactly that. <laughs> Okay, so to carry on. Uh, yes. Just on a practical level, when you talk about breaking the conceit of I, do you do that in the same way as with dependent origination, or is it something that just happens as a result of achieving a particular state? Um, well, it's. Uh, those that kind of uh, coming to an end, it's through a change of of vision, the change of of, uh, of understanding, and so it, is that there's a um, in a way it's based on the same kind of of letting go that uh, <clears throat> say that when the the um, uh, you know in in terms of dependent origination, there's different many different aspects of it, but when say the the mind. Uh, let's go of avijja when it when it becomes fully awake when avijja falls away then <clears throat> that um, there's a certain amount of of intention uh, that the, is brought to uh, recognizing oh this is ignorance or that uh, this is or further down the track this is uh, this is <clears throat> this is desiring it recognizes that and then through that recognizing then having the, the spiritual capacity to to let go of uh, ignorance or to let go of uh, craving and such like then um, so there's an intention but there's also that quality of, of uh, uh, say focusedness of attention there's intention there's attention and then that um, uh, say uh, quality of um, of energy or commitment the virya so that's brought to to that so there, uh, I would say it's it's the same in as in a in a broad way that uh, <clears throat> because it's that uh, recognizing that that uh, I me and my feeling that ahankara mamankara is is essentially empty. So that the attention has to be brought to that. There has to be a an intention to to uh, 
to know that, to understand that clearly. And then the uh, then through that attention and, and intention and applying the energy, then that conceit falls away if there's sufficient oomph in the system. Spiritual oomph. To, to let that, that fall away. So, to continue then, let's. <clears throat> this next passage is from the extremely helpful uh, discourse called. Uh, the Sabhasava Sutta, which is the second one in the middle-length discourses. So this is a, a, a kind of compendium of uh, meditation methods that the Buddha gives. Uh, uh, it's uh, seven different ways of working with the outflows, the asavas, or the, the, the way that the mind um, gets caught up in things. And so it's a, a very useful sutta to get familiar with. Uh, Majimanikaya number two, Sabhasava Sutta. Uh, in the um, Bhikkhu Bodhi, Bhikkhu Nyanamoli translation, it's called All the Taints. So, Asava can be translated as taint, meaning something that's corrupting or, or um, poisoning or um, distorting. Uh, the, um, I, I like the word outflow, as it sort of captures the, the feeling of the mind getting caught up in, in an object. Um, uh, Ajahn Tanisaro stoically refers to them as the effluence, effluence, which also means out, flowing out. But I always get a mental image of a drain pipe <laughs> when uh, I read that. So uh, I, I find I do a little bit of internal translation with uh, with that. Um, also, the corruptions. If you remember that that uh, passage from Berlin Game uh, about that from the Melinda, King, the questions of King Melinda that. The corruptions um, in uh, some of I.B. Horner's translations of the Pali, uh, she calls them the cankers. So a canker is a kind of um, uh, an, in, an infection, like a uh, that's got a, a lot of sort of pus and uh, a kind of goopiness, uh, uh, like a um, uh, a, uh, a kind of rotting tumor. Which is, and if your mind is going, Ugh, that's what it's supposed to do. <laughs> so, the canker is a—it's not a very common word, but it's a—it's a kind of um, deep infection. Uh, I don't know what the medical term would be nowadays, but um, some kind of, um, a, uh, say, a profound state of uh, something needs some very serious antibiotics to to deal with it. Cantankerous. Ah, that's an interesting word. Um, <laughs> the canker, the the cankerous cantankerous. Uh, there might be a relationship, uh, but uh, it certainly is a good. It's worthy of a connection, anyway. Most cantankerous people have got cankers that are still operating. It's still caught in the outflows. Anyway, so this is uh, in the um, uh, the second section of the Sabhasava Sutta. This is talking about um, where you put your attention. So that the the, the Buddha is uh, amongst those seven different ways of, of working with the the asavas. The um, 
uh, sorry, the, the, uh, it's, this is the, from the, the, the first one. No, sorry, it's, it's from the... Uh, no, it's, yeah, it's from the first one. What's fit for attention and not fit for attention. So that this is how the mind gets caught up in, in patterns of thinking that just make us more confused. So what he calls not fit for attention. This is how they attend unwisely. So this is talking about how we, we uh, waste our time with our thinking. <clears throat> Quote, Was I in the past? Was I not in the past? What was I in the past? How was I in the past? Having been what? What did I become in the past? Shall I be in the future? Shall I not be in the future? What shall I be in the future? How shall I be in the future? Having been what? What shall I become in the future? Or else they are inwardly perplexed about the present, thus, Am I? Am I not? What am I? How am I? Where has this being come from? Where will it go? When they attend unwisely in this way, one of six views arises in them. The view, self exists for me, arises in them, as true and established. Or the view, no self exists for me, arises in them, as true and established. Or the view, I perceive self with self, arises in them, as true and established. Or the view, I perceive not self with self, arises in them, as true and established. Or the view, I perceive self with not-self, arises in them as true and established. Or else they have some such view as this. It is this self of mine that speaks and feels and experiences here and there the results of good and bad actions. But this self of mine is permanent, everlasting, eternal, not subject to change. And it will endure as long as eternity. These speculative views, because are called the thicket of views. It's like a thicket is like a, a dense patch of forest with brambles and branches and twigs and thorns and such like. The thicket of views, the wilderness of views, the contortion of views. Contortion is all sort of bent around and knotted up, twisted. The vacillation of views. Uh, that vacillation means to be shuttling backwards and forwards between one thing and another. Um, the fetter of views. A fetter is a, like handcuffs or chains that tie you up. So the Buddha has a, a very wide range of things that are obstructive and difficult in that. So you've got a, um, a thicket, a wilderness, a contortion, a vacillation, and a fetter. <laughs> so basically, you're sort of tied up, uncomfortable, bouncing around, um, and... Um, and in chains, all at the same time. And in knots. <laughs> so it's a very graphic way of describing the mind getting caught up in these particular patterns of thinking. Fettered by the fetter of views, the untaught ordinary person is not freed from birth, aging and death, from sorrow, lamentation, pain, grief and despair. They are not freed from suffering, I say. So again, this, this reflects... Um, the uh, the Buddha's resolution uh, to keep his teaching confined to what's useful, what really helps us, and and so um, there was that dialogue I was quoting the other day from Malunkya Putta where he says that if you don't answer these philosophical questions, I'm going to disrobe, and and um, asks these similar uh, questions that are similar to this, not identical, but similar to um, like, does the universe exist? Is the 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 Atman the same as the 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 universe, or is it? 
apart from the universe, is it eternal, is it not eternal, and so on. And uh, it's also, you'll notice, within this, um, that one of, the, he's, one of the views he points to is the view, no self exists for me, arises in the most true and established. So that the view of, uh, you know, I, I have no self, that's one of the views he's saying, be careful about getting uh, 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 tied up in that, attached to that. <clears throat> the, the, um, and the whole point being, this is that the, the mind takes hold of, of a, an idea like that and then um, it uh, gets established uh, as, tr uh, as being true. This is what's really happening. The mind grabs a particular expression and says, this is what's happening, this is true. Uh, and that very grabbing and uh, establishing of the, the belief in it, then that's what you know, causes this uh, tangling of the mind. Sometimes the Buddha responded to such like dilemmas and confusions with careful explanations. For example, the exquisitely framed example in chapter 11, where the Buddha uses the analogy of fire to explain a subtle point to his faithful interlocutor, the wonder of Achagota. That's what we, a sutta we've referred to a few times. It's uh, sutta number 72 in the Middle Length Discourses, Vachagota and Fire, which we'll come to later on, chapter 11. On other occasions, his response was less verbal, but perhaps just as explicit in other ways. Here is an account of such an exchange, again, with the perennially inquisitive Vachagota. I have a fantasy myself of one day writing a sort of a, uh, a sort of biography of Vachagota, fictionalized you know, Vachagota's story, and because uh, there's so many great little encounters with, between him and the Buddha, and uh, and it does end happily with him becoming an arahant. So, but there's many uh, uh, interesting encounters along the way. Then the wonder of Vachagota approached the Blessed One and said to him, "How is it, Master Gotama? Is there a self?" When this was said, the Blessed One was silent. Then Master Gotama, is there no self? A second time, the Blessed One was silent. Then the wanderer Vachagota rose from his seat and departed. Then, not long after the wanderer Vachagota had left, the Venerable Ananda said to the Blessed One, Why is it, Venerable Sir, that when the Blessed One was questioned by the wanderer Vachagota, he did not answer? And the Buddha replies, if, Ananda, when I was asked by the wanderer of Achagota, is there a self? If I had answered, there is a self, this would have been siding with those summoners and Brahmins who are eternalists. And if, when I was asked by him, is there no self, I had answered, there is no self, this would have been siding with those summoners and Brahmins who are, who are annihilationists. If Ananda, when I was asked by the wonder of Achagota, is there a self, I had answered, there is a self, would this have been consistent on my part with the arising of the knowledge that all phenomena are not self? No venerable sir. And if, when I was asked by him, is there no self, I had answered, there is no self, the wonder of Achagota, already confused, would have fallen into even greater confusion, thinking, it seems that the self I formerly had does not exist now. <laughs> so this is a, a, a very um, uh, famous encounter and a dialogue. 
And Ananda's always sort of trying to be the perfect helper and make everything all right, make everybody happy, and look after all the Buddha's arrangements and the perfect secretary and uh, PA for the personal assistant for the Buddha. And so he's all oh dear. Why didn't he say anything? It's a, I mean, it's a, uh, yeah, I know he's a totally enlightened master, and I have absolute faith in his wisdom. But oh, you can almost feel this sort of fussy concern slightly uh, yeah, Ananda didn't become an arahant until after the Buddha was Parinibbana so but uh, so he's very sort of caring and sweet and thoughtful and trying to make everybody happy all the time and so then he asks well, you know because Vajagata is plainly not uh, uh, not particularly satisfied with the Buddha sitting there silent and so it's a uh, the Buddha often talks him through why he did things in a certain way or Ananda will make some kind of declaration like uh, uh, I, this uh, uh, dependent origination is really wonderful and it's clear as clear can be. And the, the Buddha says, not so, Ananda, not so. Don't say that, Ananda. Yeah. And so there's a lot of say not so, Ananda, on the part of the Buddha. There's also there's a, uh, uh, an interesting book by the Christian theologian called Raimundo Panikar, who's a half-Spanish, half-Indian uh, Catholic theologian. Uh, called uh, The Silence of God, The Answer of the Buddha. I think we've got a copy of it in the library. The Silence of God, hyphen, the, or, or dash, The Answer of the Buddha. And so that uh, he sort of expounds on this um, uh, this theme of, of uh, sometimes silence is the, the, uh, uh, the only appropriate expression of the truth. In the very first discourse of the middle-length collection, the Mula Pariyaya Sutta, the root of all things, the Buddha makes a very thorough analysis of this error of conceit. He begins, and it's a really, really long sutta, this one, the Mula Pariyaya Sutta. Here, because an untaught ordinary person who has no regard for noble ones and is unskilled and undisciplined in their Dhamma, perceives earth as earth. Having perceived earth as earth, such a one conceives themselves as earth. They conceive themselves in earth. They conceive themselves apart from earth. They conceive earth to be mine. They delight in earth. Why is that? Because they've not fully understood it, I say. He then continues the theme, applying it to the rest of the four elements, uh, air, fire, uh, water, um, with exactly the same sort of analysis about how uh, people conceive themselves in or apart from and, or, or as the different elements as mine. So he continues with the rest of the four elements through beings, gods, Pajapati, the Brahma gods of the Abhasara, Subakinna, Vehapala realms representing the second, third and fourth jhanas, the overlord, Abhibhu, which is an interesting term. That's uh, also... Um, that sutta that talks about uh, the encounter with ba the Brahma god Baka, um, that's when he, he, he sort of declares, I am the overlord, I am the creator, the, the, um, and the, uh, the, the, the um, ruler of all beings. Uh, Abhibhu is the Pali word for that, Abhibhu. So it's, uh, it's rendered as the overlord or the, the, the sort of supreme one. The realms of the four formless jhanas, then the seen, the heard, the sensed, 
recognized, finally reaching unity and diversity, and then to complete the picture. So it's all of these, he, he repeats the same uh, uh, pattern of an untoward ordinary person who conceives themselves in relationship to all these things, the four elements, these different deities, um, the, uh, with relationship to the gods and the formless jhanas, all the six senses, and unity, diversity, and so on. And finally, to complete the picture, they perceive all as all, and uh, the Pali word for all is sabba, S-A-B-B-A, sabba. They perceive all as all. Having perceived all as all, they conceive themselves as all. They conceive themselves in all. They conceive themselves apart from all. They conceive all to be mine. They delight in all. Why is that? Because they've not, un they've not fully understood it, I say. They perceive Nibbana as Nibbana. Having perceived Nibbana as Nibbana, they conceive themselves as Nibbana. They conceive themselves in Nibbana. They conceive themselves apart from Nibbana. They conceive Nibbana to be mine. They delight in Nibbana. Why is that? Because they've not fully understood it, I say. The Buddha then goes on to repeat the entire pattern seven times in his effort to outline the training and the goal of the practice. So in each of those seven, um, <coughs> he, uh, he's fin he does exactly the, the, repeats the whole thing. <laughs> and, then, um, uh, and then says, one, um, one who, has un who has understood this has understood it because they, um, they are free from lust. They understood it because they're free from hatred. They've understood it because they're free from delusion. And, and uh, various other sort of aspects like that. So it's, it goes over and over and over and over these points. So he repeats the entire pattern seven times in his effort to outline the training and the goal of the practice. He concludes with Bhikkhus, the Tathagata, accomplished and fully enlightened, directly knows earth as earth. Having directly known earth as earth, he does not conceive himself as earth. He does not conceive himself in earth. He does not conceive himself apart from earth. He does not conceive earth to be mine. He does not delight in earth. Why is that? Because he's understood that delight is the root of suffering and that with being as condition there is birth and that for whatever has come to be there is aging and death. Therefore, bhikkhus, through the complete destruction, fading away, cessation, giving up and relinquishing of cravings, the Tathagata has awakened to supreme full enlightenment, I say. He directly knows water is water, and uh, fire is fire, um, air is air. And through that whole list, the uh, beings, gods, Pajapati, the Brahma gods of the Abhasara, Subhakina, Vehapala realms, <coughs> the overlord, the uh, four formless jhanas, seen, heard, sensed, cognized, unity, diversity. And finally, he says, uh, he knows uh, Nibbana as Nibbana. He did, uh, the Tathagata uh, knows Nibbana as Nibbana. He does not conceive himself as Nibbana. He does not conceive himself in Nibbana. He does not conceive himself apart from or coming from Nibbana. He does not conceive Nibbana to be mine. He does not delight in Nibbana. Why is that? Because he has understood that delight is the root of suffering and that with being as condition there is birth, and that for whatever has come to be, there is aging and death. Therefore, bhikkhus, through the complete destruction, fading away, cessation, giving up and relinquishing of cravings, 
the Tathagata has awakened to supreme full enlightenment, I say. When compared to the last response to Vachagota, this lengthy explanation might seem to be the very opposite approach. Nonetheless, it produced a similar response. So at the end of the discourse, the reader is treated to a rare finishing touch. So, and the final words of the sutta is, um, the final words are, that is what the Blessed One said, but those bhikkhus did not d delight in the Blessed One's words. <laughs> so after all of that, they said, well, I don't agree. <laughs> and uh, the, there's no more explanation in the sutta itself, but in the commentary it says that the, 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 uh, the people that the Buddha was speaking to, um, the monks had all been Brahmins, uh, from a theistic background um, before uh, they had taken the ordination with, with uh, the Buddha. And so the, uh, the part of the thoroughness of this um, explanation and uh, how it's going over and over and over and over again about um, the, uh, uh, the, the problematic and the deluded nature of conceiving, um, they, the con their conditioning as, as Brahmins is... Uh, is still having its effect, and they, uh, they uh, even with this extraordinarily thorough explanation, then they they don't agree with the Buddha, and they don't they did not delight in what he had to say. But then, of course, the commentary then says, but later on, <laughs> when the Buddha gave another discourse, and they they they, they describe this uh, Gotamaka Sutta in the uh, Book of the Threes in the Anguttara Nikaya, when they when the Buddha delivered that same discourse to them then they uh, all developed faith and became arahants. And it's kind of strange, because I looked it up, and the Gotamaka Sutta was given in a different place, and it's about a hundredth of the length of it, and it just uh, it, it doesn't seem to be related to it at all. But So I'm not sure where the commentators got that from. But anyway, it's, uh, it's one of those mysteries. But uh, it's also it's, um, a good example of the, the fact that the Buddha was not always believed, even by those who've gone forth as his disciples. And that our conditioning of like, well, I don't like it. You know, it's like someone is, uh, say, uh, totally convinced that the Buddha never taught about past lives or future lives, and that they're absolutely convinced that the, the you know, this is just nonsense, and that the Buddha never taught about rebirth. You know, it's all just um, made up by uh, by superstitious, foolish people. That uh, they could have the Buddha you know, talking about that in front of them and, and explaining how uh, there's you know, past lives, future lives, and going through uh, every detail of it and but I just don't agree <laughs> and so that, uh, that's the, the prerogative of the individual is to, to find out for themselves but, it, uh, and it's, but it's, I think it's one of the strengths of the Pali Canon that you don't have even the Buddha's own disciples automatically agreeing with him but, uh, and one of the, it's one of the things that makes you have a sense of yeah that's, that sounds like a, a, it's likely to be a genuine record because that if it was uh, what they call a hagiography, where you know, the the spiritual teacher or the leader is always doing everything right. Like in the northern Buddhist scriptures, the Buddha is totally flawless and uh, this sort of absolutely um, yeah, uh, sort of, uh, immaculate and successful in every respect. The Buddha never makes a mistake in the northern Buddhist scriptures. Or if he if he appears to, it's only because he's trying to teach somebody something. The Buddha never really makes mistakes. But in the Pali Canon, then the Buddha doesn't succeed every time. Like when he meets Upaka on the on the way, on the path, and then uh, Upaka sort of doesn't doesn't uh, uh, give rise to faith and, and uh, uh, walks away from the Buddha. So that that's 
that this these kind of incidents you find in the Pali Canon make me feel that it's a, a it's an indication of a of a trustworthy scripture. And it wasn't it that the hundred percent believers thought that it must be a copying mistake in the course of the passing down the sort of that's right. It can't be true. Yeah, they, it must be. A, it must be some kind of error. Yeah, because it doesn't fit with my idealized picture. <laughs> yeah. The copying errors do happen, but uh, um, it's also the fact that this was all passed on by by rote learning for four hundred years before it was ever written down. Yes. Buddha's talking about he conceives he conceives earth as earth and then he says he directly knows earth as earth and just trying to wonder what, what, what would be the the difference between the, that, that kind of direct knowing of earth as earth as earth and conceiving and conceiving. So um, he directly know, uh, having directly known earth as earth, he does not conceive himself as earth. So like appreciating, okay, this is the experience of the earth element, and then, and then, based on that uh, uh, awakened awareness of that, then the mind is not creating a self in relationship to it. But, and but just within relation, just to the earth element. So, because at first he's sort of saying he conceives earth as earth, and then, and then later he says he directly knows earth as earth. So no, um, no, he says that. Because the Tathagata, accomplished and fully enlightened, directly knows earth as earth. Having directly known earth as earth, he does not conceive himself as earth. What does the, what does the unenlightened person The unenlightened person, um, having perceived earth as earth, okay. such a one conceives himself as earth. Okay, so he says, uh, having perceived earth as earth, is the unenlightened person. And then the Tathagata, having directly known Earth as Earth, so it's not quite the same verb. Yeah. Uh, and also, this is a very um, another one of these very thorough and refined suttas, so it's, it's helpful to have the words in front of you and go through it bit by bit and read the same paragraph four or five times to, to, to let it sink in. I don't... I, I was just, Sikimaka uh, and I would just try to figure out what the Pali words are for perceiving and for conceiving, but we couldn't quite uh, find that yet. Uh, well, uh, perceiving, um, it's, um, I'd have to look that up. Certainly, conceiving is manyati. But I'd have to look up, uh, like, a, as in a, uh, a perceiver of the world. I'd have to, I'll have to look that up. It'd be, it'd be related to Sanya, I'm sure, but uh, um, I, I can't think off the top of my head what the. And then in this case, it's knowing. Well, the, yeah, for the Tathagata, it's directly known, direct knowing. So that would be Anya, probably, Anyati, um, and then the. Um, the other one would be um, perceiving. Uh, yeah, I'd have to look that up, but it'll be related to Sanya, I'm sure. Let's read another couple of paragraphs to finish this bit up. 
It is said that the group of monks whom the Buddha was addressing were formerly Brahmin priests, and that perhaps this dismantlement of the conception of being, quote-unquote, was too threatening for them to take. In addition, in other situations, even though the deconstruction of the sense of being that the Anatta teaching provided might have been approved of, this was not always the end of the matter. For, no matter how hard the sorry, for no matter how hard the Buddha tried to convey that the teaching on Anatta was not a philosophical or metaphysical position, but rather skillful means to free the heart, the teaching was regularly taken in the wrong way. And not surprisingly, it has been repeatedly misconstrued in the intervening centuries. The following essay is a useful exploration of this principle. So then after this is a very, very, very fine piece written by Ajahn Tanisro called No Self or Not Self. And so this is um, uh, uh, a very uh, important thing to, to consider. That the, uh, As I was saying, the Buddha was, was, a, was like a, um, a clinician rather than a theoretician. So like a doctor that, uh, like going to the, the GP and the doctor says, you know, where does it hurt? So the Buddha was rather like going to the GP, that uh, where does it hurt? Whereas someone who's a medical researcher, um, they, <coughs> they've, uh, they can uh, show you uh, 150 different references about pain, pain management, and they'll talk about the, 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 uh, um, the way that pain works in the body, and they'll, and they'll get so sort of filled with all the details about pain and how it works and all the different types of pain and different pathologies of pain, that <coughs> and you're sitting there thinking, <laughs> um, it, doctor, <laughs> it hurts. You know. <laughs> so, they, so the Buddha was not—he uh, was not speaking about anatta as a sort of philosophical position. That—that that makes sense. So, like, uh, there, uh, you know, there was like the, this is something for somebody to believe. And often people take uh, anatta to to mean. Um, the Buddha says there is no self, or we don't have a self, or this is the, or even you even come across books that are called the doctrine of no soul, that kind of thing, and uh, or the you know the Buddha says there is no self, or we don't we have no soul, and such like. But uh, as uh, as I was pointing out, right in that very um, collection of things that are talk that describe unwise thinking, no self exists for me arises as true and established. So the Buddha actually spells it out. If you have that, I believe I have no self. That's a you know a, a view that the Buddha says. Well, be careful of grasping that view because it's, that will get you tired, tangled up in the in the thickets and uh, amongst the thorns. So the uh, though, and I found this was very very helpful that uh, Lumpur Sumedha would emphasize this that uh, it's a a means of. Uh, getting a perspective on the eye-making and mind-making habits, so that feel, getting to know that feeling of I am the body, I am the personality, this is me who's speaking, me who's hearing, me who's feeling, I remember, I choose, I feel, you know, I like, I'm happy, I'm unhappy, I'm irritated, I'm inspired, that uh, it's a, a means of getting a perspective on all those I am's, those me's and, and mine's, and it's a like a um, the, and the image of a, you know, when you're trying to get a, 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 a tire off a wheel, off a bicycle, a bicycle tire or a car tire, to get the t- car tire off its, off the, off the metal wheel, you use like a lever called a tire lever. 
Yeah, it's like a metal bar that you sort of you work it between the rubber and the metal, and you can work it in there, and you can go lean on it and, and pull the, the rubber over the the edge of the the metal rim, so you can get the get the rubber tire off the off the the, the metal wheel that forms the, the center of it, and so that the the teaching on on anatta and anicca dukkha as well, but particularly anatta, it's like a tire lever, so that you kind of work it in the gap. <laughs> And to get the the uh, to to surprise the, the 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 rubber tire off the the metal rim, so that it's a a means of of sort of getting between that uh, the quality of awareness and the uh, the the perceptions of ego and uh, and the body and the personality and thoughts and emotions and feelings. So it's a it's a, a lever. It's like a tool used to to um, to to make the broaden the gap between the, the quality of, of knowing and the, the those um, perceptions of I and me and mine so then you're uh, clarifying oh this I feeling is, is something that arises and passes away this that it's a the ego is just another formation in nature but like a tire on a wheel it's kind of well <laughs> it can be really strongly uh, fixed on it and you, you, it takes quite a bit of effort to get the tire lever in between the two and lean on it to get the to get the wheel off Ajahn Sundra you were going to say something um, I know if you ever come across um, uh, I know you were teaching Alvinokanya That's right. Yeah, I, I saw that. Yeah. Yes. Yeah. Oh, well, also, there's a uh, another of Ajahn pieces is called "In Praise of Ego." <laughs> Specifically designed to get the attention of of Buddhists who are attached to. to um, there being no self, so it's a. Uh, but it's. Uh, I think if you read those pieces written by, by um, say, Venerable Paniwado and uh, Venerable Tanisaro, then well, they're they're talking about the, uh, at least as I understand it, the the usefulness of self as a psychological structure that we need. We need an ego, and it's not there by accident. It developed in the human um, in human beings. As a particular psychological form to help us function as part of a group in a family or in a, in a tribe in a village environment um, in society that it's so it's really useful so it's not there just as a sort of um, uh, a kind of weird aberration that doesn't really belong but it's it has its purpose just like our feet or our eyes or our ears or our hair and it's got a it's got its own purpose in nature and so Rather like thinking, people can can relate to thought as some kind of brain disease, and that meditation is about trying to to stop thinking. And if you could just not think, then like you'll be happy. Many people think that way, <laughs> but it's uh, uh, um, but we we uh, don't think by accident. Uh, it it's gets gets out of control. It can be really oppressive and difficult. But it when it's uh, when it's used in a skillful way, then thought can be incredibly helpful. It can be a, a most powerful tool. 
And similarly, the ego, it's, it's a useful psychological structure. It's what helps us to, to function in a, in a group and to work with, with others and to, uh, uh, say, uh, be a, uh, an, an effective um, individual in looking after our, our body and our property and our living spaces and our, our social groups. So that it's um, those kind of uh, selves are useful, but it's where they, uh, where that ego is taken as an ultimate reality, is taken as something that's absolute and permanent and and substantial. Then the dukkha comes with it. So it's where it's like just like we're thinking, where it, when it overspills its boundaries, then it, it causes trouble. So that the, well, if the ego is recognised just as being a a, um, a a kind of useful psychological structure, then uh, it's uh, uh, it, it's harmless and kind of kind of useful, but it, when it thinks it's the most important thing in the universe, like a dictator, when, like this, uh, the president of Gambia, yeah. who uh, won't step down or just has agreed to, like the ego is saying, "I'm in charge. I'm in charge. You know? <laughs> <laughs> I'm I'm the president. I'm in charge." And, and the world is saying, <clears throat> "Excuse me, no, you're not." <laughs> so that's like the when the ego sort of grabs the becomes a tyrant and thinks it's in, in charge of everything, even when it's been voted out of office and um, the tanks are gathered around the palace. <laughs> so, I'm still in charge, I'm still in charge. Yeah. He's not really the president, even though you all voted for him. Yeah. I'm still really the one. Yeah. That's like the ego is determined to hang on to its, its identity, regardless of what the universe is, is, is saying. And, uh, I often talk about this. I was at a when many years ago. I was living up at the uh, Branch Monastery in Northumberland, and um, uh, when I, I was in 1985, I was actually about to come and live here at Amravati, and so I was invited round to a number of people's homes to uh, to, to say goodbye and uh, take leave. And uh, the the one th- day I could go to this this particular family. Um, uh, the, it was the daughter's the uh, fifth birthday party, so the only, for some reason the only day I could get there, and it was their little daughter Rivka. Well, she's thirty something now, but uh, it was her fifth birthday party. So there I find myself in the middle of this kid's birthday party. So I was not a very uh, not a very entertaining. Uh, I was dressed in an interesting way, but <laughs> I didn't juggle or kind of blow up balloons or anything. But. Anyway, so I've, it was a slightly bizarre, surrealistic situation in the middle of this kids, you know, these five, four and five and six-year-olds running around having their, doing their thing. Anyway, the, what was really striking to me was there was this one little lad, and he looked a bit like Mussolini. You know, he had this kind of big chest and this sort of very tidy hair cut. You know, his hair was all very neatly combed. And... and and he was walking around, and and he was saying, "I'm in charge. I'm in charge. I'm in charge." And no one was paying any attention to him. So it's sort of imbe- embedded. He's probably he's probably the uh, <coughs> the uh, chief inspector of police in Northumberland by now. <coughs> but uh, it was kind of, it was kind of marvelous because it really sits in my mind as a sort of. Uh, the emblem of the ego, like I'm in charge. I'm in charge. I'm in charge. Kind of walking around and no one paying any attention. All the other kids are just uh, like ignoring him completely, and he's still he's not dissuaded at all. Determined to 
insist that he's really in charge of this party, even though no one, no one's, everyone's ignoring him. And, uh, and said, that's it. That's just what the ego is like. That it's, it's, I'm important. I'm the most significant thing here. So you should, you should, you should respect me, and 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 you know, I deserve to be properly treated. Now, <laughs> why is everybody ignoring me? Well, never mind. They'll 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 wake up soon. <laughs> so that's uh, uh, it's very helpful to um, that having these these kind of images where where you see that that's what the ego is like when it gets out of uh, gets out of control. And then it, when you say, "Don't you know who I am?" <laughs> it was actually another little story. That was uh, I'll finish in a moment because it's ten past, but. Uh, <clears throat> George George Sharp, who uh, was the uh, chairman of the English Sangha Trust, uh, the the steward organisation that looks after the um, finances and such here at, here in Chidhurst, uh, he's a, a, an artist. He's a, a graphic artist. He was an illustrator and, and used to be the art director for Pan Books for quite, uh, some time. And uh, every, every so often he would uh, uh, he used to invite Lumpur Samedi to go and visit various art galleries and exhibitions in London. So. When Lumpur left, I inherited that uh, opportunity. So once in a while, George would invite me to go to some exhibition uh, uh, in London. So on this particular occasion, there was a, 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 a some uh, an exhibition at the uh, I think it was at the National Portrait Gallery of Leonardo da Vinci's um, work. And so George said, "There's a Leonardo exhibition in London. Uh, can I take you?" And I said, "Yes, sounds very good." <coughs> so we went along and uh, and. Went to the desk, and, uh, and George has got his sort of dark overcoat and his sort of fedora hat, and uh, <coughs> and uh, the young uh, woman at the desk uh, uh, says, uh, "Well, uh, uh, George says, well, we'd like to, uh, two, uh, two, please." And she said, "I'm terribly sorry, sir, but we're, the exhibition's sold out for the next three months." And then George said, "Don't you know who I am?" <laughs> <laughs> he was just trying; it was being very George-like. He was just trying it on. <laughs> And she said, "No, I don't." <laughs> and he just said, "Oh well, I just thought I just thought I'd give it a try." <laughs> it was marvelous because it was like he did the sort of ego, the ego thing with the kind of, just sort of twe- tweaking his shoulders and the sort of tilt of his hat, like, "Don't you know who I am?" <laughs> and uh, and he, but then he was just like, "Okay, well, I'm not anybody special, actually." <laughs> I just, just thought I'd try it to see if you'd give me a ticket, but she wouldn't. <laughs> so we went to a different gallery instead. So I think that's enough for today, since time is going by. <laughs>